You are now tuned in to the December 26er podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26ers, welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Jamila McGill. Jamila is the co-founder of Brooklyn Tea, an emerging tea brand that wants to draw people into tea culture and away from sugary drinks. Not only have Jamila and her partner Ali been selling high-quality tea online, but they recently opened a beautiful tea room in Brooklyn, New York. You'll learn through our conversation that Jamila has entrepreneurship and hustle in her blood. But what I also appreciate about her and Ali's story is the fact that they really took the time to educate themselves in their field before jumping into the deep end. This is truly a lesson in launching a brand and doing entrepreneurship the right way. So take a listen and I hope you enjoy. Jamila, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. You bring great energy. You got this megawatt smile, even <laughs> though it's all rainy outside. I'm just trying to give back your smile. <laughs> and you brought the same energy when we spoke on the phone. Like I could just feel it radiate. Yeah. Uh, over the airwaves. Yeah, it kind of felt like we already kind of knew each exactly. other. Exactly. And then turns out we kind of do. Right. Yeah. I don't know if we should get into that in yeah. the interview. Maybe we will. We'll yeah. see what happens. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> tell us, who is Jamila McGill? I am the great granddaughter of a bootlegger and someone who, a, grand, a great grandmother who ran numbers. Really? So your great grandmother was a bootlegger and she ran numbers? Absolutely. You know what? Let's just jump right into that then because that's just interesting. Where did you grow up? Atlanta, Georgia. Shout out to Atlanta, ATL. You were there before it was like the place to move, though. Absolutely. I was there when it was the place not to move, particularly where I grew up. Mm -hmm. Um, Now you can't afford to live there. Right. Um, Which is interesting because there was a time where people wouldn't pay to spit there. (laughs) Although I loved it. Right. Um, And it's near and dear to my heart. So but yeah, that's where the hustle was. Right. Right. Um, Atlanta is known for that hustle and that grit in a very interesting way that kind of counters to this narrative of Southern slowness, Mm -hmm. right? Um, It was interesting coming to New York and people always like, oh, how are you like this little fish in this this large ocean, right? Or whatever things that, whatever analogy that people Mm -hmm. make up, right? And for me, I never felt the difference. I never felt that, oh, wow, um, this is larger than life, Mm -hmm. right? For me, it was like, this is a new platform to do to do what I've been doing, right? right. To do what those before me have already been doing. My, my Like I said, my great-grandmother, my mother, my aunt, my grandma, like everyone is known to figure, uh, they're known for what is my move, right? Mm-hmm. How do I get there? I have a vision. Now channel that energy, channel what we know and get there. Absolutely. Yeah. And people assume like, you know, yeah, south of the Mason-Dixon, like the farther you get, in certain areas, it does get slower. But I think Atlanta has always been its own metropolis in a sense, and that's only expanded over time. And people are known for making things happen and creating. It's its own hub that I think is separate and distinct from other parts of the South for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So a part of that is this self-identity and this self-worth that's captured in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And my partner, Ali and I, we talk about this all the time of what... 
I got to learn about myself mm-hmm. um, being a black person, being a black woman and a in a community in a city that is very much so a civil rights um, landmark. Right. Right. Um, and what that did for me and understanding those, again, who came before me and the type of grind that it takes. Right. <laughs> I should say to get a seat at the table. Absolutely. And not being oblivious to that. Right. Not being um, naive to it and not being afraid of it mm-hmm. either. So Atlanta is always been there to make me have that awareness and the belief in myself. And so I'm very thankful for what it gave me because then I was able to come to New York, right? And find a home in Brooklyn mm-hmm. um, and begin to take this journey into what later becomes Brooklyn Tea. Atlanta stand up. Yeah. One of your own out here making it happen. And we're going to get all into Brooklyn Tea yeah. and to our listeners they actually brought some tea for me. <laughs> Jamila and her partner. Um, so we're going to talk about that and their brand. But before we get there, so was your great grandmother alive when you were younger growing up or no? You just heard the, the stories. Yeah, she is a legend. Okay. Yeah. So tell me about this legend. <laughs> so my great grandmother, she was the matriarch. Mm-hmm. She ran a what do we call it? We call it shotgun home mm-hmm. in the fourth ward of Atlanta. If you don't know about the fourth ward, look it up. <laughs> Go Google it. Yes. <laughs> uh, but it was right around the corner from where the great and late Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. grew up mm-hmm. in his childhood home. Wow. So that's where her shotgun home was as well, mm-hmm. right? And she was. Um, a no-nonsense woman, but she was loving and she was kind. Uh, and she had not only her her daughter that she took care of, which was my great uh, my grandmother, but also her daughter's mm-hmm. children. Right, so everyone grew up in their home. Right, um, and that means you have to find a way to feed all those mouths. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> that's just that's just the that's just the bottom. Mm-hmm. Right. I have to find a way to feed all these people that I love dearly, right? So it's a by any means necessary mentality, right? And so I'm not sure exactly how she got into <laughs> running numbers and mm-hmm. bootlegging. <laughs> uh, but back in that time, my understanding from my family is she was in a period of prohibition. And so then there was that time where you are kind of creating on your own. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> being an entrepreneur of sorts. And the access to education for her was limited. She didn't finish. Uh, I, I believe her her education stopped at about sixth grade. Mm-hmm. Which right? for the time period for black folks sounds about right. Right. Mm-hmm. So she doesn't have more than a sixth grade education. She was pregnant with my grandmother or gave birth to her by 14. Wow. Right. So the options for a career at that time is limited. Mm hmm. You're going to be a domestic. Right. You know, something like that, essentially. Right. That with having grandchildren to feed doesn't really pan out well if you're just going to be a domestic. There's no. Not at all. Mm -hmm. Right. So we have to find where the money is. Right. And I believe that's what brought her into um, her entrepreneurial (laughs) background. Her endeavors. Right. Right. Her endeavors. Let's (laughs) call it that. And so she had these men, these women, these people who respected her in the community. They knew to pay her and they knew to pay her on time, mm-hmm. right? Um, she would put her 
um, earnings under my mother's bed, right? And so that's how my mom knew about what she was doing. So that's how the legend got passed on because the money was under the bed. (laughs) 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 There was no bank for her. Right. Right? So she she wasn't putting her stuff in the Bank of America. Right. That was her safe. You know, the dealers, they they put it in the wall, you know, here and there, but she was putting it under the bed. Right. And you would think, well, that's a silly place to put money, right? It's a silly place if you were to come and try to rob my great-grandmother. Yeah, because it sounds like she was about her business. (laughs) She was about her business, Mm -hmm. a little bit about that life. (laughs) (laughs) But you have to be, as not only a woman, a black woman, uneducated, no access to resources, you have children in your home, you're in a dangerous industry, let's say, you better be ready. Right. And so years later, she ends up marrying my great-grandfather, who for most of my life I thought was like my biological great-grandfather. Many of us have that story. Yes. yes. Um, and it wasn't, I don't think it was until he died at over 80 years old. And I was like, oh, we were never actually related, but that didn't matter. Right. And we know that. We know that. Um, and I can only speak for the, the black family and the black mm-hmm. family unit. Once you're in, you're in, right. you're in. We don't do that step half. Yeah. None no, of that. No, mm-hmm. no, no. Uh, because in, in that case, most of my siblings are half siblings. <laughs> right. We don't, we don't do that at no. all. So I'm just describing for you like how it was okay for her to put the money under my my mother's bed Mm -hmm. and it was more issue if you came into it so this woman who loved this man she actually they got into a dispute right she ended up you know shooting him (laughs) I was waiting for it I'm like tell me she did not shoot this man yeah she did and you know what they somehow mended their relationship and (laughs) they stayed together until she died first so that's like a next level crazy in love yeah I mean I'm not gonna replicate that part yeah no let's not let's not yeah we're gonna pull back from that the grit though and like the stick-to-itiveness and not taking you know no mess we'll just say mess off anybody (laughs) take that glean that part let's not be shooting folks up right, though. Right, right. I mean, you take what you can and leave what you shouldn't be taking. Mm-hmm. So I think that is in the DNA of right. who I am and uh, I, I believe the women in my family mm-hmm. um, turn out to be. So it's been a really interesting tale of falling down, getting up, Getting back up. Um, not having anything, figuring out how to make something out of it. Uh, that's been my mother's story. My mother has four, it's four of us, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I'm the third of four children. And I didn't realize until I started applying for college that our our annual income was 20K. And, you know, I think those of us who grew up in families who were below the poverty line or right on it or just really struggling, we all have that story where you have that moment where you realize all these years, my mother or my grandmother has been making it happen off very little. Yeah. It's very sobering and it grows you up. It does. I love how you said that. It Mm -hmm. grows you up because there's no excuse for you not to be excellent. Right. To figure out what, how to chase excellence. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I don't consider myself to be an excellent person. That does kind of feel weird. I want to put on that hat, but I I am in constant search and chasing of of excellence. Maintaining a standard of excellence. Um, And and I have her and, and every other woman in my family to thank for that. Uh, because she led with such love in our household. 
mm-hmm. right? I wasn't oblivious. It's not that like I didn't know we didn't have a lot of money. Right. You knew you knew there was struggle. Right. But not to that degree. Mm-hmm. And so to know or to imagine what she was doing daily to make us feel secure, right? Mm-hmm. And f- to feel attended to, to feel watched over and cared for. It's extraordinary. Absolutely. Because I'm just this one person right now with zero children and I'm trying to figure that out. Mm-hmm. Right. So how you extend that to little ones is amazing. Right. Ashley Wisdom, who we had on the show, was talking about health outcomes for black women. And she alluded to or referenced this concept of how the life experiences of black women affect our health. Mm-hmm. And when you think about the amount of internalization that has to happen just to survive from day to day yeah. and make your children feel secure, all of that, the weight of that and the stress is going somewhere. And it it often manifests in physical ailments when really it's just people having been beaten down by trying to survive on a daily, you know, day-to-day basis, which I think feeds into our generation. If you, if you are aware of that, um, the need or the desire to exceed and sort of give back or make a return on that investment is palpable Mm -hmm. because you know what somebody has sacrificed and it's more than just money or time. They've given up their body in Mm -hmm. a sense, right? Right. The, this the stress and the weight of bringing kids up and making sure that they have the right opportunities. Yeah. Shout out to black mamas. Shout out to all the black mamas. Yes. Can I say that louder? Of shout course out, you can. Shout out to all the black mamas in the world. Word. <laughs> so we're going to get into your entrepreneurial journey. Yeah. But what happened between the great grandmother generation and yours? Did anybody in your family, did the women actually try their hand at business or were they just like, you know what, let's just go out here and make this paycheck? Yeah. So then there's my aunt. Mm-hmm. So my aunt, she passed three years ago, but she had that that spirit as well. She she was a realtor, mm-hmm. right? And I think up until that point, that was the closest thing to not being tied down to a nine to five mm-hmm. that we had in our family. Uh, she had multiple jobs, right? So she started a cleaning company, right? And she was a realtor and then she was trying to get a broker's license and um, she actually went back to school to get her diploma, right, wow. to graduate from college, right, to have her undergrad degree. And so that was, for me as a child, the epitome of what it looked like to be a woman who was trying to have their own. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's that different learnings I had from my mama understood what it meant to to be a duck. Right. To be above water with that calm energy and love and support and paddling like hell underneath the surface. Mm -hmm. Right. From my aunt, I learned how to be just fierce in what I wanted to chase and to have my own. Right. That no one had to tell me what to do. Mm -hmm. Right. Unless I wanted them to tell me (laughs) how to guide me, Mm -hmm. right? And that I didn't have to have a nine to five to be successful, Mm -hmm. right? Which was really important for me because the labor around me was very much so you clock in, you clock out. Right. And so that was my only window at the time to a life outside of that. Um, And to see her trying to start businesses on her own. And in all honesty, they they did not become successful, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But that wasn't the lesson there for me, it was more so this person trying to create their own wealth um, and this person who didn't see themselves as an employee, right? And I've carried that and will continue to carry that. 
Right. And often I think there are stories, we all know those stories, especially in the black community of, you know, I think as Cat Williams says that skit where he's like trying it and trying it. We won't use the real words yeah. and it don't work. Right? right. We all know those people in our family who have the entrepreneurial spirit and they've tried. They've right. rolled the dice several times and it's not for a lack of trying. Right. It's either the stars didn't align mm -hmm. or they didn't have the, the appropriate capital on the runway mm -hmm. to be able to invest in it until it popped. Mm -hmm. Not having the appropriate resources to mm -hmm. learn or mentors to go to. Or sometimes it's just, you know, I talk to our white counterparts and often they launch a business and they have people right in their community who are either going to give them the money to invest, you know, as an official investor or they have the resources to say, I'm going to support you. So they have this built-in customer base yes. or investment pool to start. Often, not always, but often you have um, black folks who are just trying it based on an idea and sheer will. And we all know that those are critical elements, but it's not the only elements no, to be successful. <laughs> and so sometimes people experience failure, not because it wasn't a great idea. It was a great thing. They just didn't have all the puzzle pieces mm -hmm. to make it happen. Mm -hmm. And I think as we move generation to generation, you know, we're, we're stepping, we're, we're building on the stepping stones that they created. We yeah. stand on their shoulders. Yeah. We glean from them, take a little more resources, you know, that we find here, have access to more information. We mm -hmm. live in the digital age, but we absolutely are doing that on their backs. Yeah. So for me, what I look at often is someone like your aunt, her success story may not be um, that she left here having built this huge business, mm -hmm. but the success story is you learned from her yes. and you're now building a business and some of the tools that you're using to do that absolutely were deposited by her. There's this article uh, my partner Ali sent to me today. So do you know about the infamous image of the three kids who um, it's the equity versus equality image? Yes. Mm -hmm. right? So it's been trying to teach people the difference between the, the two the two terms right and so there's three kids one is tall one is medium height and there's a and there's a small mm -hmm. shorter um, kid right and you see how they're all on equal ground right right and that's equality right they they started at the same place so it would seem and but that's not enough right equity is when the the smaller kid gets the support to be able to see at the same view yes as everyone else right we all know that so I was reading this article and it was interesting because it actually showed what was actually problematic in that image too mm -hmm. and it set up that the other kid to seem as if they had some type of disability that they started from, from being lack from having lack of right that there was already they were starting from a place of personally being inferior mm -hmm. right and that the taller kid had the advantage because they were already um more superior they already just came with so much like as an individual right right and that's problematic because it doesn't really get at systemic problem right that this kid doesn't have less as an individual is they have less because of a system mm -hmm. so the truer image would be that the ground under them would would, would actually be a little bit caved in for that for that everyone would be the same height mm -hmm. but the person who is more marginalized right Right. The ground will actually sink beneath them. Right. It's not a solid foundation. It's not a solid foundation. They all are equal in height in this new image. Right. Because the quote unquote smaller person isn't small at all. They actually are just as capable. Right. They can have just the same view. But because the ground under them has is sunken, mm -hmm. 
a little bit more than the others, then it's disproportionate. Absolutely. Right? And so I say that because that is the story of what happened to my aunt, mm-hmm. right, in connection to what you're saying, that she was a tall woman, you know, and that in that um, metaphoric sense, mm-hmm. right, she was... Um, proud and she was beautiful and she was courageous and highly intelligent right so it wasn't about her skill right or her will the ground where she was standing was sunken Mm -hmm. right and I got to take from that an acknowledgement of where we are starting from right right and what does it mean to know that that is what is happening, right? Mm-hmm. And to pull from my friends and family and, and whatever network I can pull from to make that ground a, a, a little more even, mm-hmm. right? To put a little bit more dirt there, right? And so that's been the village that supported um, where we are now and where we're trying to get to. That's incredible. And it's funny you should bring this up because as DeMarcus and I sort of examine where this show is going, and what the brand is about. One of the things that I appreciate um, about our conversations is the level of candor that people bring about the hardships that we experience as people of color. and we are not monolithic. We, we have different experiences, but there are some common threads mm-hmm. uh, that we all deal with, be it a disparity in access to capital and opportunity, uh, racial discrimination, the subtle microaggressions that we experience on a regular basis that takes its toll or just, you know, simply not having a rich uncle to mm-hmm. go to for startup capital to start. But we don't use this as a platform for a pity party to no. say this is why we haven't been able to do X, Y and Z. We're saying we acknowledge this, but how do we do exactly? exactly what you were saying. How do we shore up the foundation anyway and pull resources as a community and help each other Mm -hmm. and start that knowledge share Mm -hmm. and figuring out you know, quid pro quo, what can you invest in me and what can I invest in you so mm-hmm. that we progress mm-hmm. together? Absolutely. That's really what it's about. That was really well said. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> you should be on the other side of this. <laughs> no, I like asking the questions and then throwing in my two cents here and there. I want to get to, I'm easing into, you know, your brand now, yes. but you didn't start, you didn't like leave high school and say, I want to go into entrepreneurship. That's what I'm about. Where did your educational mm-hmm. and uh, professional goals start in the beginning? Yeah, I'm not sure if I knew exactly where my goals were. Mm-hmm. I, I'll i say this. Sometime in the beginning of college, I thought I was going to be a PR agent. Really? Yeah. What was your interest in, in public relations? Where'd that come from? Um, I just thought that, I don't know if I had a lot of context for what it meant. These are the things that I thought made me um, made me um, a candidate for this for this for this career I liked talking to people mm-hmm. I liked seeing people's dreams come true um I think those are the only two things okay <laughs> you had the gift of gab yeah and you liked helping people manifest a vision yeah so you know that doesn't really go too far I think. <laughs> <laughs> but it's those are important elements in yeah. the PR world absolutely yeah so I randomly did a teacher fellowship a summer fellowship mm-hmm. the summer after my junior year college so at my, I'll just give a little bit of history here. At my school, you were always trying to figure out what was that internship, right? What um, was that next level of work? What was that mm-hmm. thing to put on your resume to like make you shine just a little bit more? Right? And shout out your alma mater. Yes, Spelman College. Let's make, <laughs> shout out to the AUC. Okay, I was going to do a little bit of a build. <laughs> Go 
ahead. Oh, I see. I, I just stole your thunder, no, but it's no, all no. good. But yeah, so at Spelman, you again, it was this other opportunity to figure out what it meant for you to be excellent and to not kind of sit on your laurels, right? And so I didn't know what I wanted to intern with, but I knew that I wanted to have an internship, okay? Right? I didn't just want to sit home and just have summer break, mm-hmm. right? And so my friend told me about this teacher fellowship, and I interviewed. I didn't really have much interest in being an educator. If you, I was an English major, so if you, mm-hmm. most people assumed that I wanted to be a teacher, right? And I had the nerve to actually be offended when people asked me that. <laughs> Right. The nerve. Right. Um, it had like this weird stigma for some reason. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't even know where I got it from or developed. But this weird stigma of not having spent four years in college just to make a teacher salary. And I think that stigma still exists yeah. with a lot of people. Yeah. Like they like people see teaching not for the incredible skill and gift. There's a lot of people who are teachers who shouldn't be. But those who are, <laughs> are really trained and well equipped. It is one of the hardest jobs in the world for very little pay. But people often view it as like a last resort for some yeah. reason like oh you couldn't do anything else so you became so you a teacher did. yeah those who can't do teach mm-hmm. right right that that's so inaccurate and I came to learn that mm-hmm. right so I did this teaching internship which brought me to New York okay it flew me out to the interview because the fle- fellowship took place here right um I did the interview. They liked me. I was a part of fellowship. I did the fellowship there. And so you're assigned to a classroom and you have this mentor Mm -hmm. who supports you. You're in that classroom. First you observe, then you assist, and then you're in the classroom in front of the room leading yourself. Okay. So we were doing a social studies lesson and we came across the typical part of American history where it's just, you know, two to three pages on black history. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Um, And just the level of unawareness that and I was teaching fourth grade students of just lack of knowledge and unawareness about slavery. Right. Uh, About what had taken place in America, Mm -hmm. um, how they were able to sit in the seats that they were sitting in. Um, and get this education at that I thought was a fabulous education, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that they were receiving at this time. It just had no connection. And I actually went to the bathroom uh, and cried. Wow. It affected you that deeply. Because... I knew how much, again, hearkening back to my life growing up in Atlanta, how much of me was so connected to knowing my history. Right. And how much of my perseverance was connected to knowing who I was. Mm -hmm. Right. And now I'm in this classroom of um, it was all black, all black boys, fourth grade. No idea. Right. I had known so much more of what they didn't know by like three years old. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and definitely by fourth grade. And I mean, I was just floored and it, it really broke my heart. And at that, I made the decision in the bathroom that I had to become an educator. So right then you yep. said, this is what I want to do. Yeah. And so then I had a terrible first year. <laughs> so many teachers tell <laughs> that I know they're like, oh, my, ter- my first year was just like, what is it about the first year that makes it so hard? So I think there's probably so many reasons. Most teachers are pretty type A or have type A tendencies. Mm-hmm. And we've always been pretty good at almost everything we touch, right? We were the class presidents, school presidents, captain of the cheerleading team, Mm -hmm. right? 
basketball captain. We were all of the right things to be, right? Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter that your circumstance was hard, right? Because that was a situation you were placed into, right? And was put upon you, but you as an individual excelled, right? True. So it's our first time of actually not being great at something, Mm -hmm. at something being more challenging than we were ready for, right? Uh, And it's our first first time experiencing failure Mm -hmm. in a real sense, right? And I thought I experienced failure, failure before because I grew up and... The neighborhood that I grew up in, we didn't have much money. But no, it was not that. Mm -hmm. Teaching those little children (laughs) in first grade was the first time I ever really failed in life. Um, Because they expose your lack of self-confidence. They expose you for who you are. And they'll prey on it. Yeah. Kids are way more intelligent than we give them credit for. They know Mm -hmm. when you lack self-assurance, because that's really what it is. They're picking up on all of your insecurities, Mm -hmm. right? And they're nailing you to the (laughs) wall with it. (laughs) They are nailing you to the wall. And you have to find yourself because when you find like who you are, you get more control of your emotions. Mm -hmm. You steady yourself more. You become more emotionally constant. And so then you can rally them, right? And so for me, I was a first grade teacher, really terrible for the first six months, I would say. And in my setting, I was the only black teacher in first grade. Okay. So what I came to realize is I was trying to imitate all these great practices that I saw, but I was having a hard time turnkeying it for myself. Okay. And it wasn't until I went to a different school to observe um, another a fabulous teacher. Can I shout her out? Absolutely. Okay. Her name is Nikki Bowen. Um, Nikki, if you somehow hear this, I love you. You are fabulous and you changed my entire life. So I observed her, black woman, and she was herself. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was forgetting to do. I was mimicking, right? And I wasn't adapting. I love that. Say that again. (laughs) (laughs) So I was mimicking, but I wasn't adapting. You're dropping those quotables. You know this, right? Jules. But no, I saw what they were doing and it was working and it looked great. And so I was copying it, but it fell flat because it wasn't me. Mm -hmm. Right. It wasn't my personality. It didn't represent how I moved through life. Right. Um, But it worked really well for them. I wanted to be that. But when I saw Nikki, I was like, oh, I can do this. Right. I can show up and be me. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And that was the turning point. Right. And so. So then I figured out who I was as a professional, mm-hmm. right? As an educator, uh, not completely right. It's just my first year of teaching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but getting there. Mm-hmm. Right. So six months in, my kids figure out that. <laughs> <laughs> they like somebody has helped her. Miss right. <laughs> McGill went to therapy or something. <laughs> <laughs> and they got it. Right. And we got our lives together. Right. Mm-hmm. And so now when you came in, you weren't going to kick a chair. You weren't going to run out my classroom. Oh, yeah. They were doing. Oh, the- they were like going oh, in on you. No, it was <laughs> all the way turned up. <laughs> I had no control. Um, which is so so amazing because I'm not a pushover mm-hmm. in real life, right? Real life. Right. Uh, so I'm just like, Jamila, you're not, that 
people don't know you to be this way, mm-hmm. right? To interact with people and have people interact with you this way. But this little six-year-old, right, is 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 doing this, right? Or you are allowing this to happen, mm-hmm. right? Because you are being you're allowing yourself to be pushed over. Um, and so I would say about February, because your school starts around August, mm-hmm. September, right? Um, I saw Nikki and then it was like, okay, it's time to be me, right? And it, it was life-changing at that moment because students who I was failing, right, they got to learn a little bit before they left first grade, right? Mm-hmm. Um we got to, and they got to be themselves. They didn't, they didn't have to walk around with this angry chip because I had failed to create safety and community in the classroom, mm-hmm. right? I had failed at all those things um, that now they are teaching teachers <laughs> to do, right? right. It's a part of the curriculum now. But at that time, it was such a focus on academics that there wasn't a lot of strategic teaching and knowledge around culture, right? Right. Real way and how to create it for yourself, right? And not just seeing a video of somebody executed in their way alone, mm-hmm. right? And what I think is interesting about what you're saying, I think this speaks to uh, the shaky foundation you were talking about right. because you did the work. I did. You said, okay, what am I doing or not doing as an educator to provide the safe environment for these students? But imagine the teachers that are going into a classroom with zero cultural connection, mm-hmm. no racial awareness, no understanding of what might be going on with the child internally and just putting a label on them mm-hmm. and saying, oh, they need to be in a remedial class. They have conduct disorder without considering what can I do to make this environment an environment where they can thrive. And that is how that is one of the ways in which that shaky foundation starts. Yes. So it's this pipeline that happens very early because, you know, that that what is supposed to be a village within academia to help this child succeed is not putting in the work. No. To make sure that they're set up and we've done everything we've can, we've, we can, we can, we've exhausted every resource to put them in an environment where they can excel. And I still had learning to do. Of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it still was the blame game a little bit mm-hmm. uh, in my lack of experience. I still, even into my second year, I got them better at like managing, mm-hmm. right? Um, students will sit down, they would do their work. and But I still, they... I still wasn't seeing them, mm-hmm. right? So my students who were struggling the most um, behaviorally, I was still doing the blame game with them. I was still pointing fingers at every other reason but myself that they weren't thriving, mm-hmm. right? Which is really sad. I'm really regretful of that um, because I know now in my experience in my third year that it, so much of it I could have prevented, mm-hmm. Right. I hadn't figured out how to relate to them. Right. I hadn't done because it really is like research. Right. I wasn't enough of a researcher. I wasn't enough of I wasn't in a state of inquiry because Mm -hmm. to really figure out children, you have to be inquisitive. Absolutely. You have to believe that there's something you can do to swing the pendulum, right? And I hadn't really truly understood or believed that at that point because I still wanted to be great. So if I'm still trying to be great, then it can't be anything truly wrong with what I'm doing. <laughs> right. Right? Because again, we're that type A or type A tendency, captain, right? Mm-hmm. President. Can't be me. Right. Right. But once I began, began to understand that through different texts and different classes, um, there's this practice called responsive classroom, which I think is fabulous. I began to understand that 
I had some biases that were showing up, Mm -hmm. right? I had this need to feel like I could do no wrong, right? That was still showing up that was hindering their educational experience. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't until about my third into fourth year that I stopped being a detriment to children. (laughs) (laughs) That's some strong language. But... I I know it's strong, but I I really think it shows up, right? When Mm -hmm. you hear, let's think about so many musicians who who point to their teacher saying that they didn't think they could be anything. True. So as much as it sounds strong, it shows up strong, too. It does. And people (laughs) hold it. Yeah. They hold that years and years later. You carry what was deposited into you you as a child, good or bad. Yeah. So then I look at education as more of a customer service industry. Really? Yeah. You are my customer, right? Mm -hmm. Customers never wrong. So I got to figure it out. Right. Mm -hmm. That's a unique perspective. Yeah. For sure. So where are you now? Do you still work in education? So partly. So Mm -hmm. I work in the Department of Education, um, there's this program called Showcase Schools, and they do this fabulous job of soliciting from schools across every district, every part of the city, who has a promising practice, mm-hmm. right? Whether it be math, social, emotional learning, literacy, whatever. You apply, and then um, the program directors, and I serve as a program director, okay. we support those schools to basically curate their visitation days. Okay. So it's kind of like event planning for education. Nice. <laughs> which is really cool. And we get to the heart of what makes their practice tick. Mm-hmm. So we think about the conditions under which they've been able to thrive. Right. And so it's not just come here and look at what we do and try to extrapolate that for yourselves. It's really, again, that curiosity of why does that teacher succeed? Mm-hmm. Right. What are all the things about this school that gave her the ability to do that? Right. And instead of just looking at this video and saying this is good work and now try to figure that out. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is what I was doing um, my first year. Right. Right. Seeing the good work, trying to figure it out on my own. So that's what I do now in Brooklyn T. Awesome. So Brooklyn T. Yes. We finally got there. <laughs> so in addition to this amazing day job, you've built a brand along mm-hmm. with your partner. Mm-hmm. What is Brooklyn Tea? So Brooklyn Tea is the beverage for everyone, right? Mm -hmm. Brooklyn Tea is, in many ways, it's the entry point for every palate, Mm -hmm. right? It's the entry point for for people who are trying to be more health conscious. It's the people for who don't, who, it's for people who don't know they want to be more health conscious. And we're going to um, trick you. It's becoming that because our focus is on it being delicious, mm-hmm. right? Our focus is on it being a wonderful experience. It being it's being it's aromatic, mm-hmm. right? It catches you off guard, right? Um, it's not it's not just a bag, right? Mm-hmm. Thrown into hot water. It's cared for. It's loved upon, mm-hmm. right? And then it's delivered to the individual. So Brooklyn Tea currently is online, mm-hmm. right? We've been in business for a little over a year. We launched we launched in September 2017. Mm-hmm. And now we are working towards having a storefront. Which is coming very, very soon. Yes, January 19th. MLK weekend, which we discussed, is very deliberate. So intentional. <laughs> 
<laughs> so intentional. So going back to the customer service mm-hmm. that Peace has is very much so a part of Brooklyn Tea, right? We want people to feel like they're having the time of their lives. With right? tea. With tea, mm-hmm. right? Um, and when you're doing that, you actually are bettering your life mm-hmm. because we know tea has so many health benefits. It just depends on the tea to distinguish which health benefit you are receiving. Absolutely. Time, right? But that has been our premise is that we're trying to offer people an authentic and I would even say joyful experience mm-hmm. of, of tea uh, because we are up against really well-marketed poison right poison i want to get into that for sure but let's step back for a second because we live in an age where everything's like technology Mm -hmm. everybody wants a tech company they want to build an app um a lot of service oriented businesses that that we come across people who are coaches Mm -hmm. you know selling their knowledge Mm -hmm. what made you say and your partner say let's do tea and shout we can make this successful. Yeah. Shout out to Ali, uh, who is a partner in business and in life, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was his brainchild, to be to be honest. So he comes from a Jamaican household, and tea is very prevalent, right? I almost turned up right there just because you said Jamaican household, but I won't start mimicking air horn sounds just yet. I mean, Go you ahead. Need to do whatever you need to do, <laughs> right? Be happy. But so he's been serving his mom tea since he was. Three years old mm-hmm. like at her bed. That's a very Jamaican story, by the way. <laughs> I mean, there's there's a this its own rabbit hole mm-hmm. there, right? And so I call it being mischievous. I don't know what Ali would like to call would like to call it. He's giving me a hit. <laughs> she was barely putting his mother was barely putting sugar in her tea, and so he was curious. Like I'm just gonna you know stop taking mm-hmm. or stop putting rather sugar into her tea bit by bit. So well into decades later, like she's drinking his tea, unaware that he had, you know, stopped putting sugar in. I'm mad you said decades later. Decades. <laughs> he just told her like two years ago. Are you like, serious? Yeah, two years ago. I was at the dinner table. Uh, <laughs> so, I believe it sparked a curiosity for what it means to have an authentic tea experience. Mm-hmm. I also think he became aware of the lack of necessity of sugar, mm-hmm. right? She wasn't doing it because it was going to completely alter her experience if she didn't have sugar in her tea, right? Mm-hmm. It was a habit, sure. right? A habit that he broke for her, right? To her benefit, mm-hmm. right? And so that lingered with him. And so he, from there, learned so much you know, about tea ceremony and the different types of Chinese versus Japanese tea ceremony. Um, back at the ranch with Jamila... <laughs> <laughs> the Southern girl. I, in all honesty, didn't know about tea beyond like sweet tea, peach tea. Of course, you grew up in the ATL. Right. Sweet and tea, a, I love some sweet tea right. for sure. And a good old half and half. <laughs> <laughs> or Arnold, Arnold Palmer, is Arnold that what they call Palmer. it? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so he introduced me to the world of tea, mm-hmm. and that was a part of our dating experience. That was a part of like his his Mac, his game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Swag, right? It's actually <laughs> impressive. Yeah. You know, going off the beaten path a little bit. Yeah. New angle. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So that either describes 
how elaborate he is or how much it took to kind of sway me. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know who's the ridiculous person in the situation, but it turned out really well. And so he would make me a cup of chai and put a little cinnamon stick at the bottom mm-hmm. or like um, present me with this blooming tea that would start as this little crumbled up bud and then it would like explode into this beautiful flower and right before my eyes. And I was like, this is magic, right? Oh, Ali magic. had the game on lock. Yeah. I'm like, how many other girls? <laughs> <laughs> He was really great and and remains to this day really great at understanding where you are Mm -hmm. in in your tea journey and not trying to force an experience on you that's not going to match. So he didn't start me out with the more traditional teas like hojicha or genmaicha, which I die for now, Mm -hmm. right? He started me off with ginger tea, right? And really fancy chai tea with cinnamon sticks at the bottom, Mm -hmm. right? So it was cutesy enough for me and sweet enough for my palate at the time. And so I was hooked, right? So then I could explore more. Hooked on the tea or hooked on Ali or both? A little bit of both. <laughs> I mean, we here today starting a company, so. <laughs> Clearly it all worked. It all worked. Um, so yeah, it was a nicely, you know, packaged presentation, <laughs> right? And so from there, we had this full five-year conversation. You know, the five-year plan mm-hmm. conversation that people say you're supposed to have with somebody, some significant other. Yes. We weren't sitting down trying to have a formal, here's the five-year plan. Let me see what you wrote in your notes. Um, it was just organic because when people are interested in each other, um, you, you're you curious to know about what you have in store, right? And how For you sure. support. Um, so it was more a conversation around that than um, it being this kind of stiff and uh, clinical way of talking about mm-hmm. the life to come, right? So he mentioned that he wanted to start a tea company and I was like yo that's super dope (laughs) so he came to you with this idea yeah like yo this is super dope and really for me I was thinking about like how excellent he was already at tea and how he was able to reel me in right Mm -hmm. and also my mind was how many black people like are in the tea industry right because this is you two are the first that I'm meeting personally and we were joking about this before (laughs) it started we've got the folks on Instagram who are hocking flat tummy tea and all that that's not this is not what we're talking about here yes in not today's episode (laughs) no (laughs) and it turns out it's not many so it turns out that there are only 15 black owned tea companies in the U.S. In the entire nation, only 15. Completely. Wow. So there's a space for us. There's there's an entry point that we can get into, right? And create even more opportunity, right? Mm -hmm. And our hope is that we are bringing awareness to (laughs) the small number, Mm -hmm. right? And that is inspirational in a sense for whoever wants to come after, right? Right. Um, Because when you think about it, tea plantations, the hand, the handwork is done by people of color. Absolutely. Right? The tea is grown, packaged, and the faces are 
black and brown folks, mm-hmm. right? And we want to be on all ends of that, right? And so when we get into this business, our thought isn't how do we snatch the market up for just ourselves, mm-hmm. right? Um, we will always stay away from that. It's how do we educate, right? How do we create this community of black tea owners, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's not just for us to have, it's for everyone. Right. So what is your business model look like? Because I don't want people to think that you're just this middleman that you go to a warehouse, you purchase some tea wholesale and sell it to them. That's not what you do. No, that is not what we do at all. So our our tea is sourced from all over the world, one. Mm-hmm. And it is curated by Ali, who is a certified tea sommelier. Which I did not even know was a thing until I met you guys. Yeah. Welcome to everybody else. <laughs> We're all in the same boat. So a tea sommelier is a person. He studied under um, the guidance of a tea master um, because it's tea sommelier. And then the next level is tea master. Wow. Stay tuned because we will also snatch up that. I'm not mad. As well. Uh, (laughs) But he is well versed, right, in in tea culture, Mm -hmm. right? He can, you could tell him your mood and he can offer a very specific tea to your liking. That is next level. Right. And he's a very humble man. So he will try to say that because he's not a tea master, he can't do some of the tea master things, but I disagree. (laughs) Um, So he will say he is expert at pairing, which tea sommeliers are known for doing. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you see him in his work and he's been able to kind of guinea pig me into the situation too, right? Um, You can look at a tea and know what it is. You can smell a tea and know what it is. And, you know, with time, we we will grow even more knowledgeable Mm -hmm. around that so we can enhance the experience of the customer, right? Sure. So, no, it's not clicking a button on Amazon, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) And, And now it's Brooklyn Tea. It's so much deeper than that. We taste the teas over and over again, right, at different temperatures, right? Is it 400 degrees or is it 395? Right. Right? Is it a half a teaspoon or a whole teaspoon? Is it 1.6 ounces, right? We, depending on the cup, right? Mm-hmm. Is it Because if there's an eight ounce cup versus a 12 ounce cup, right? Then there's a small little teacups, right? Mm-hmm. And all of those things matter, right? The difference between steeping a beautiful Japanese green tea at three minutes versus five is catastrophic for us. Wow. Right? So th- this ain't Tetley. <laughs> this is not just dipping a Lipton tea bag into some water and hoping for the best. No. Um, <laughs> and I hate Lipton, by the way. I probably shouldn't say that, but I can't stand Lipton tea. <laughs> you know, do we're not here to say what you shouldn't be drinking, mm-hmm. but we're definitely going to encourage you for what you should be drinking. <laughs> for sure. For sure. And that, I believe, is what makes us special, mm-hmm. right? I think any brand that gives the amount of attention to the product that I believe we do mm-hmm. is what separates you. Right. And there are a couple of things that I want to highlight for our listeners. You know, we've had people who come on the show and they bring things yeah. like, oh, here's a gift. Try it at home. You know, what have you. But Ali yeah. and you came with like a setup. So I have been sipping tea yes. throughout this this interview. Yes. Um, in addition to having some to take home, like they brought the whole I 
even know this was possible. We got the teapot here. Mm -hmm. They brought the tea. They poured it. I'm drinking this tea without any sugar in it Mm -hmm. or anything like that. I'm not a big like sugar person in my tea. Maybe honey sometimes, but I didn't even feel like I needed it. Now remind me what kind of tea this is. Yes. So you are drinking the vanilla rooibos right now. Mm -hmm. And in the vanilla rooibos, it's it's one of my favorites. So you have slivers of the vanilla bean. Mm -hmm. You have the calendula flower and you have the South African red bush tea. Wow. And so rooibos is the number one drink in South Africa. Really? Right. And so we brought here, we brought this tea in particular because we wanted to be sensitive to if you weren't a caffeine drinker, mm-hmm. right? Because it doesn't have any caffeine, right? Um, we wanted to be sensitive to it, your palate, right? Um, maybe you aren't a person who is likes astringent teas, mm-hmm. right? And so even in trying to think about what to bring to you today, we're trying to make it as open of an experience as possible, mm-hmm. right? So there's no reason why you shouldn't be tasting it. <laughs> right, right. Right. Um, and I want to say this about it because I've tried vanilla teas before, mm-hmm. caramel teas, and they always taste, I'm a huge tea drinker. I'm mm-hmm. like, it's my thing. Um, they always taste artificial. Mm-hmm. It's like, what is in this? Like mm-hmm. what additive or what is it? And I don't like really, you know, sugary tasting mm-hmm. teas or things that taste like they might have a shot of cough medicine in it or, right. or something else. So what I appreciated about this is A, that it's not really sweet um, and it's layered. It doesn't taste like black tea with a shot of vanilla syrup, which mm-hmm. is what a lot of the mm-hmm. things that you get off the shelf in the grocery store taste like. Thank you. I can tell you guys have done your research yeah. and really tried to make it an experience, not even in just taste, but in presentation as well. Yeah, that is a part of what we feel is, again, what sets us apart mm-hmm. is the experience. So it's not about just giving you a cup mm-hmm. and saying, drink this tea, right? You get to see Ali like create, basically. Right. He's an alchemist, mm-hmm. right? So he puts the tea together. By the way, I can make a good pot too, right? Listen, I am not doubting <laughs> that you can make a good pot of tea for sure. But no, um, and to present it in this beautiful way, to have it maintain its warmth mm-hmm. through a tea light, right? Um, which we didn't even realize. I didn't realize tea light is actually for tea, right? <laughs> I was just about to say, okay. I thought it was just like a figurative term, right. you know, for a little tiny lights. Yeah. But tea lights are literally for tea. It's literally. For tea. Now it's I gotta be fancy for, at my house. Right. It's not just for the bubble bath time, right? It's actually meant to keep the tea warm. Who knew? Learn something new every day. Right. So that is an essential part is that you're feeling like you are being well held. Mm-hmm. You're feeling like you are, we present it to everyone, no matter who you are, as mm-hmm. if you are the CEO. Right. CEO. I feel very high class mm-hmm. right now. I gotta say. Well, we've done our job well then. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like everyone is the CEO, founder of a Fortune 500 company Mm -hmm. when we when you are being introduced to Brooklyn Tea. And here's one thing I want to highlight about the brand. You didn't you and Ali didn't wake up and say, oh, we want to start a tea company and just did it. You really did your research. You became the expert, you know, the person who was certified. Right. I believe Ali actually worked at, you know, at another company before to kind of learn the business as well. Yes. He worked at a tea shop in the East Village, I believe, for a little over a year to learn what it meant to run a successful tea shop, Mm -hmm. right, to see what customers like and didn't like, to see what sold, right, to see what they talked about, Mm -hmm. right, what piqued their interest. 
and what was what was the customer profile, right? And to bring all of that knowledge into Brooklyn Tea. It's commendable because I think when you're talking about type A'ers and people who are like high achievers, sometimes impulse can come with that, which mm-hmm. sounds crazy because type A, you think, you know, we're controlling. But because we know we're capable, yeah. sometimes we jump out there without a parachute and mm-hmm. just say, I did some research. I know what I want to do. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go for it and have faith that it's going to work. And then when it doesn't, yeah. you start pointing fingers mm-hmm. of all the outside uh, conditions or yeah. circumstances that prevented it from working when really you just didn't back to foundation. You didn't build the foundation and garner um, the education and the knowledge and pull pull as many resources as you could. And there's nothing wrong with learning by doing or learning as you go. We all do that at some level, but I think sometimes we can go farther and farther faster with less mistakes if we have that due diligence and investigation period. Yeah, so we launched in September 2017, Mm -hmm. as I mentioned, but we started, its inception was in 2014. So three years. So three years before it hit the public. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. The first year was us blending a little bit of business and pleasure. Mm-hmm, right. right. <laughs> Weaving and, it in and out a little bit. Right. Mm-hmm. Of going to different tea shops and we would go tea hopping instead of bar hopping. Right. We would have these little mini journals and write down everything that we noticed. What teas did they sell? Right. What was the variety? How how well did they steep it? Right. Um what was the reaction from customers who drank their tea? What was the customer service like, period? Mm-hmm. What did the bathroom look like? The decor of the space? Everything. So we were taking stock of the industry, right? And seeing where there was a potential place for us to um, insert, mm-hmm. right? And fill whatever void there was. Right? I love tea hopping. Let me just say that's adorable. And very much my speed over bar hopping. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you you wake up the next morning... <laughs> Right, feeling good. Yeah, yeah, having your wits about you. And that was year one. And then year two was de- was attention to what the name would be, mm-hmm. right? What the branding could potentially become, right? And so we're going through, we went through like 10 different iterations of the T10, right? Four different iterations of the logo itself. And we had of our friend Jamie and she um, owns a branding design company called mm-hmm. Lick Picks and she took a look at what we were trying to do and in a very nice way she told us that it was trash. <laughs> <laughs> like no this is not the path you yeah. want to go down. Yeah it's just kind of like oh let me take a little look at it which was again her nice way of saying mm-hmm. do not <laughs> do this by all means <laughs> do not put this out to people to say that you are brand. <laughs> <laughs> and she created that for us and so in the beginning I talk about this network that Mm -hmm. we got to lean on to help build up Brooklyn Tea. And so we had these people who could be honest with us in a loving and supportive way and not in that way where they tell you it doesn't work and then you're left there to figure it out. Like, okay, now what? Right. Mm But to guide you, right, and actually um, pick up the baton mm-hmm. in many ways. And, and we've had many people run the race for us. Sure. Right? Um, I have some girlfriends who have sold more tea than me. Really? Yes. That's when you know you got something good. Um, Seth Godin, who wrote The Purple Cow and a ton of oh other books, gosh. you know, he calls them I the sneezers. Yeah, he's, he's, <laughs> he, he, he calls those people the sneezers, yeah. like the ones who will get out there in the marketplace and sell for you. Yeah. Brooklyn Tea is only 
where it is today because of our village, mm-hmm. right? And I like to think that because we took our time to develop it, they were in on the conversations. They knew how much we had invested in time, energy, and money mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. to get to this point. And so when it was time to launch, they they were our our, our salesmen, right? Mm-hmm. Or saleswomen, right? They were our finance directors and <laughs> uh, engineers, right? All these people came out to rally, right? Um, and I don't think you could do that with a rush decision. No way. No way. Okay. So you built out the online presence, mm-hmm. you're selling teas online, mm-hmm. and then you decide to go brick and mortar. Yeah. Which honestly, for me, was surprising mm-hmm. because now everything's, you know, let's just stay online. We direct a consumer who wants the overhead of a space, retails a dying industry. Knowing you both now, I know you did the research. So how did you come to the decision to open up an actual brick and mortar location? Well, it's because everyone else doesn't Mm -hmm. that we will, right? Mm -hmm. So when you go to most tea shops in the city here, it's purchase and go. Yes. Right? There's some fantastic tea out there and you have to buy it and prepare it at your home. Mm -hmm. Right? So when everyone else is going left, sometimes you have to decide to go right. True. Right? Tea is best except in a space. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. It's best sipped when you can sit down, pause. Right. Mm -hmm. And really enjoy it. The to go experience in many ways doesn't match the traditional values of tea. It doesn't. Right. And so we are taking the risk. Mm -hmm. Right. We're taking the risk that tea, what tea is meant to do for people will mean something. Mm -hmm. Right. And that people will have this experience that now because all the studies are showing, not all the studies, but there are all these shops that don't have that for them Mm -hmm. and they'll see them importance of it. Absolutely. So we are providing in some ways to start contrast and we believe that's what's going to make Brooklyn Tea work or that is what makes Brooklyn Tea work. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Even from our festivals and our pop-ups, right. You can have tea samplers out there. You just get the little one ounce, two ounce mm-hmm. cup, right? You drink it, you decide if you're going to purchase it or not. With us, we have our teapots laid out and we have it uh, We have it from the least sweetened to the most sweetened. Mm-hmm. We have a green, a black, an herbal, right? There's so much that goes into creating an experience. You can't really create an experience or as much as we would like to online. This is true. So for us, the online is a ceiling. There's a mm-hmm. ceiling there because we can't do for customers what we can do for them in person. We can't laugh with you online. True. Right. Yeah, you can do the social media LOL, Mm -hmm. right? And we will continue to do that and we will continue to get even better at that, right? But there is something about welcoming people into a space, making people feel like they belong. Mm Mm-hmm. That we want to provide. Yeah. And what I find interesting, I thought it was just me. I didn't realize this was like a cultural thing with tea is for me, tea is it represents a sense of community. Yeah. When my friends who are tea drinkers come to my house, I love to say, oh, I'm going to make you a chai latte. You know, try this with this oat milk I got. Or when we go out and being able to have tea and a nice, pretty mug and have a conversation, it it encourages warmth in both the literal and the figurative sense. And I think that's that's what you guys are introducing. Yeah. We call ourselves the Brooklyn Tea 
family. The Brooklyn Tea family, if you're a family, you need a living room. This is true. <laughs> you need a place to laugh and chill right. and relax and kick your shoes off. You need a living room. And I also think we have to do a storefront because there's going to be a lot of Brooklyn Knights who are going to come and find us if we don't have a storefront. <laughs> And when we're at these festivals and pop-ups, the beautiful thing is that we have so many people saying, so where's the store? Mm -hmm. So where's where's the store, right? And so our goal is always to meet the needs and desires of the customer. Mm -hmm. Customers are saying they want to sit down and have their tea. It's not enough for them to sip a a little sample, take Mm -hmm. their little baggie and go, right? So if they're telling us that's what they want, we're going to put our listening ears on and and try to deliver. Now, the delivery has been an interesting thing. (laughs) Yes, let's talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts because we are not in you know a cheap real estate area you're, you're talking about a retail space in Brooklyn New York if anybody knows what it costs to do anything be it residential or commercial in New York City you know the, the boroughs right now you know that is not an easy feat so how did you go about culling the money together to actually do this I think we're also going to have to do a part of this right we might need a whole second episode just for that no but truly it I'll say some specific things so people can have some real takeaways, but I'm still trying to figure out how in the world (laughs) we have been able to get to where we are now, Mm -hmm. right? So we started with the Brooklyn Coffee and Tea Festival. Well, we started before then, but that was our first big crowd, Mm -hmm. right? The Brooklyn Coffee and Tea Festival hosts like something like 10,000 plus people. Wow. Right? Um, So we just had enough money (laughs) Just enough money to pay to be a part. Because those festivals and and those tables are not cheap. Not cheap. Mm -hmm. And and actually, let me back up. We actually did not have the money. Mm -hmm. We received some support from the expo itself. Okay. They met us halfway and said, okay, your name is Brooklyn T, right? We see what you're doing, what you're trying to do. We'll come down on the price a little bit. Which is shocking to me that they did this. Yeah. And so I think anybody who doesn't talk about a little bit of luck along with their grit is kind of lying. And you are the second guest to bring this up in in recent, recent recordings that, you know, people try to act like, well, I just I kept beating on doors and not realizing or willing to acknowledge that the stars aligned for them at some point. Yeah, because then you ignore privilege. Mm -hmm. Right. And so we don't want to ignore privilege a little bit there. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, in whatever shape or form it comes in. So we were able to be a part of this huge festival because they took a chance on us, mm-hmm. right? And we gathered whatever little coins we had and we were a part of this big experience. So once the luck was there, right, we got in the door and we hustled out behind. Them, right. right. You delivered once they gave you the opportunity. Absolutely. So we have Ali, who's, you know, a, a master at the T, right? You have me. I'm more like the logistics person. Mm-hmm. And then you have our friends, right, and, and my sister who's there. And they are hustling like they're getting a salary and benefits. <laughs> like and, they got that 401k plan going. Right. And they're getting zero dollars. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so, you know, honestly, that's a, a stroke of luck too mm-hmm. to have that type of village who will work for you. Absolutely. At that capacity at that level for nothing. And, you know, one lesson I, I learned recently is people may think that they want to be down and put in the work, but then when they get into it, they're like, oh, this is too hard. Yeah. No, like I, I, I can't. I'm not invested in the way that you are, which is fine. You can make a choice. But the fact that 
right? You had people who were out there boots on the ground, yeah. really pushing a, van, a, a brand yeah. that they didn't have a, a financial stake in. No. That, that's impressive. So if you have a little bit of little money, mm-hmm. <laughs> you should definitely figure out who are those people mm-hmm. because we wouldn't have been able to get an edge in without them, right? It's, it's hard to move product with, without people helping you to move it. Right. Right. And we we could have just like put tea into cups and had people try them, but we would have missed the opportunity to have people think they were having the time of their lives. Mm-hmm. Right. So you have this team of people, right, who are drinking the tea ourselves and enjoying. We're having conversations with people. I, our booth was popping. <laughs> Right? Your, booth, your booth was turned. It, exactly. And um, we were packed from the time the doors opened to they closed. We sold out of what we had. It was a two-day event. We sold out of what we were planning to bring for both days and the first day. And it's tea. And it's tea. Which speaks to the experience that you create around the tea. Right. And we had to go home that night because it, the, the event ends like around like seven, eight o'clock. Right. We don't have anything really for the next day. So mm-hmm. we have to go to Target, buy more cups. <laughs> right. You got to replenish now. Right. Because we bought these fancy cups. Mm-hmm. Right. But we're all out of the fancy cups. <laughs> Right. So then we have to go to Target and get what we can. Right. And just hope everyone's forgiving. Then we go home at that at that point is 10 o'clock at night. Mm -hmm. Right. And we have to pack. And so we're up at that point to like two o'clock in the morning. Right. We get two hours of sleep because you have to wake up to start preparing. Yes. We're going to prepare it fresh. Right. Mm -hmm. So every day is fresh tea. You have to get up early in the morning. Yes. Right. So we're waking up at 4 a.m., 4.30 a.m., after two hours of sleep to make the tea, set it up all over again, right? So what's interesting is that we never felt more exhilarated. Because you were passionate about it. Yeah. We had no sleep. We didn't eat the whole, the first day, Mm -hmm. really, just because we were like in the mindset of go, 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 right? And we never felt happier. Mm -hmm. My feet were aching. (laughs) My back hurt like it never hurt before because you're standing for hours on it, Mm -hmm. right? Mouth dry because you're talking to everybody. Yeah, you've been fasting all day. Right. You know, not drinking anything, not eating anything. Right. Um, we need to figure out how to do that better. Right? <laughs> That's not a lesson I want to drop. But <laughs> we gave everything and we continue to give everything and that's been, I think people notice it. Mm-hmm. They And, and they, they say it too. You know, Brooklyn's a very candid place. Oh, they'll, they'll keep it 100 with you right. for sure. You know, and, and they recognize the hustle. So you've hustled your way. You pulled the money together. Yeah. And now you have this brick and mortar opening on January 19th. Oh, yeah. So I worked, in edu- I worked in the school, as you know. Mm-hmm. I left that because for me, it was time for me to move on. And I took the same savings that I acquired from there mm-hmm. with a bit of Ali's savings. We started planning out the tea shop, mm-hmm. right? So at this point, there's no investors right there. And I respect that because investors typically, they get on board with things that are already moving. They want to know how much money have you put in. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And we applied for the SBA loan, right? Got it. SBA loan, 
It's a beautiful thing because I believe like only 15% of people who apply get it. Mm-hmm. So shout out to, you know, the work that went into a business plan. Like then the business plan took like about a year to create. Right? I'm sure. And got a mentor from the SBA. Um organization to help with that and to help refine and and consider everything that goes into a business plan. So there's that part too. But Mm -hmm. even with all of that, you're still not primed in many ways unless you just really, really look out for someone who's just going to put cash down. Right. Right. And so it's all of us. It's it's all of our savings. Mm -hmm. Right. You're all in. We're completely all in. You get the SBA loan and they want you all in too. Mm -hmm. Right. They, They ask you for how much you have, right? And then you show them how much you have. And our minds was like, we're just showing you how much you have. Right. It doesn't mean I'm going to put it all in in. this. Yes. Right. And then you realize, oh no, they want you to put in everything you said you had. You're going to spend all that before they show their hand. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's a lot of capital. Absolutely. That's everything. Mm -hmm. Right. That's scary. Because that, that's what we've been told in a traditional sense. That's your emergency fund or your nest egg. If something happens, if you lose your job, somebody gets sick, I can pull from here but now that money is invested in a dream yeah so it's scary but it's thrilling at the same time so I don't want to confuse people to say we just have this loads of money we have what we have mm-hmm. right and until this day we're still trying to figure out when the, the SBA loan SBA loan is going to truly kick in okay right? and but we started Indiegogo mm-hmm. so a crowdsourcing campaign to you know ask friends and family to contribute right um, we've taken on other jobs so you have mm-hmm. Ali, who's digital marketer by trade. So he's like creating websites for a furniture company, right? Right. <laughs> Whatever you have to do to, to fund it. Right. I bought property in Atlanta. So what's coming out of that mm-hmm. um, contributes to Brooklyn Tea. The Coffee and Tea Festival was important because it gave us that base. It boosted our online sales. Mm-hmm. Right. It gave us a little bit of cash flow. And so then we but we reinvested that into another festival. Mm-hmm. Right. So this is this isn't just money that is just floating. Now we just. Take right. You're not flushed like, right. oh, we got these customers now. No, because then you also have to basically pay back the stanchion that you bought. Mm-hmm. Right. To to have people consider you the table. Mm-hmm. Right. The beautiful glass teapots. Right. So you still don't really see that money. Right? And people don't realize that when they see you selling they're like oh you're getting money not realizing that most of that is being dumped back yeah into the business yeah so you you guys have got this momentum going you you've done it in a systematic really deliberate way but tell me about a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day yes so (laughs) let's so there's this instance with this festival right we were trying to get to the black vegan festival um where where is this on halsey i believe super excited for Mm -hmm. it like this is our crowd. We are about to show up and show out. <laughs> this is like our fourth festival. It's like Stanchion is here. We're mm-hmm. good. Table was here. We have the tent, right? We don't need things anymore at this point, right? So that day, the day before is a lot of prep, as you can imagine. And we both still work our jobs. So it's not like we have all week, 24 hours. No, you've got to fit it in in between everything else. Right. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times it does come down to that day before that we are getting our stuff together like we got in together bit by bit but we really hit hard that day before right so that morning Ali key his car key breaks 
How does a car key break? I don't know. <laughs> but it happened. Okay. It happened. So like, you know, the the black part mm-hmm. that has like the little clicky stuff mm-hmm. on it, it breaks from like the actual key, right? And so then he glues it together. Gosh. Right? And I think maybe rubber bands it or some some craziness. Oh no, he uses a paper clip to try mm-hmm. to hold it together. So he puts it in a car because again, we're doing all these errands, mm-hmm. right? So the car can't not start. Right. That's not an option. The car has to start because we have to get places. Right. And we need a car. Right. So we use this paper, cl- this paper clip to hold it together. We're turning the car. It's not turning on at first. It's doing these false starts. Mm-hmm. Finally, we get it to go. Right. So now we're doing our errands. Uh, grocery store, Michael's. Right. Doing a little errands. We get to Staples. Right. Because we have to, I think, print some flyers or whatever. Because uh, you need the branding. You need mm-hmm, the marketing. Of course. You need the pieces of materials for people to walk off with. We get there. Go. Come out fine. Right. We're doing the false start. Starts, but starts, we're fine. We get to Home Depot, right? Because this is a day's event. Mm-hmm. We get there, and Ali realizes he doesn't have his wallet. Oh, no. This wallet has, um, what's the license call? Um, it's like a, basically like your food inspector like Okay. Like your ability to To give sell. you the right to sell yeah. or serve yes. food and beverage. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have that because he doesn't have his wallet. So he's almost more concerned about not having that than every card mm-hmm. in that wallet because you can cancel the card. Right. But you can't show up at a festival and have a health inspector come, and you don't have oh. Gosh. You don't have the goods, right? So completely, we're trying to freak out, but we actually have to keep it together. We we calling we're calling Staples to ask them can they look outside or something. Mm-hmm. I'm panicking because I like I knew I saw him with the wallet at the cash register, and that's when you start backtracking. Like, well, you had it here, you paid for X. So mm-hmm. I'm not telling him, but I'm panicking because I'm like the last place it probably is is on the ground on the street. Oh gosh, right? And so that's up for grabs, mm-hmm. right? So when they they're telling us over the phone that they don't they don't see it, they, they don't see it I'm panicking internally right but I don't mention that I saw it I saw the wallet with him at the cash register because I want to leave a little bit more hope Mm -hmm. (laughs) so we get there we're looking around he runs in it happens to be a guy at the cash register who's getting ready to leave right we're coming in as this guy is getting ready to leave he notices Ali's face Mm -hmm. from when he opened his wallet and saw his driver's license it's like I have your wallet oh my gosh Oh my goodness. Right? I was going to mail it to you, which would have been the wrong address because we don't live there. <laughs> so that it would have never made it. <laughs> it would have never made it, right? Um, so we get that, and then he's he's outside with the guy now talking, and then I'm in a car still, right? Car starts smoking. Never a good sign. Right. From the hood, car smoking. So I'm like texting Ali, like, stop talking to this guy. <laughs> the car is We're about to blow up. Enough, you know, we get here. <laughs> and luckily, there's a pet boys next to Staples. So we're like, we're like, this, all these, like, hit and miss mm-hmm. moments, right? Like we panicking to get the wallet, but we got the wallet. The car is smoking, but there's a pet boy. So we get some antifreeze. Everything's good. False start. Car starts. Mm-hmm. We go, right? So we're like, okay, cool. We made it. We're champions. We pack up everything. It takes usually about an hour and a half, two hours to pack the car, right? Because mm-hmm. we're playing Tetris. Because of again, course. you know, we're in, we're still in the infancy. So you're not out here with some big truck no. that, you know, you put everything in. No, right? Everything's getting pa- packed into this Honda, right? Right. <laughs> 
Honda gets so much love. So much love. On this show, let me tell you, they, they need to sponsor us one day. But anyway, continue. We have all this stuff packed up. We make it, we're packed up in enough time to be on time, mm-hmm. right? Turn the key. Car doesn't start. It's over now. No more false starts. It was pouring raining that day. <laughs> Torrential downpour that day, right? Car doesn't start. Car is packed. Raining. And it's like, Ali's like, I mean, maybe this is a sign we shouldn't go. Like, it's raining anyway. Mm-hmm. And there's not going to be a lot of people there, right? And I'm like, oh, no, we're going. After all of this, <laughs> yeah, you need to go. Right. So while, while he's talking and making great cases for why we should probably pack it in, um, which also is why we make a great couple of them, partners, I think. Um, I'm calling a Uber. Mm-hmm. Uber um, van to come and get us. So you got to take everything out of the car that won't start in the rain and yeah. now put it in this Uber XL or what yes. have you. So and explain to the guy like, hey, we have all this crap in our car. <laughs> right? It's really precious to us. Can you help us gently put it in mm-hmm. your car too, right? Um, so then we pack up his thing. I don't fit in there, so I have to talk, get an <laughs> oh, Uber. A separate car. A separate car to follow behind them, right? We get there um so all of this is happening it would have been so easy to just call it quits mm-hmm. again because it's raining and what are the chances that people are going to come to an outside festival when it's raining and raining for real we're not talking about a drizzle no mm-hmm. i'm talking about socks wet type of rain right um so we get there and no one else is setting up right i think at this point ali's probably had like a mental break right <laughs> He's done. <laughs> he, but done the opposite way. Like, mm-hmm. not done, like, as in shut down. Mm-hmm. Done as in, no, I'm going to set up, be the only person, yes. the only company outside setting up <laughs> in the rain. It was like an episode out of Gilligan's Island. Like, the, the wind is like, we're, like, we have to hold the legs of the tent down so it right. doesn't blow away. It's that sideways rain. Yes, right? And then he starts singing and dancing, right? And I was like, oh, yeah, he's crazy, right? But you gassed him up. He was like, at first, maybe we shouldn't do this. Now he's in it, singing and dancing, making it happen. So I have to know, did you get customers? We That was one of our best selling days. In the rain. Yeah. So what what happens is actually, you know, the vegan clientele is a free-loving clientele. Oh, yeah, they're they're a different breed. Right. Mm -hmm. So they didn't care if it it was raining or not. You know, you had people. They were dancing in the rain too, right? Wow. And so it's actually one of our best selling days in the festival. And had we not gone, we would have missed out on that opportunity. And one of the people that we met there, one of the vendors, is a cupcake company that we're going to be using in our store. So it was a pivotal moment. Absolutely. It was so many lessons learned there. Wow. So listen, before we let you get out of here, real quick, because you talked about those teas being poison, I want to touch on, in a short amount of time, what makes some of the other commercially available teas poisonous to us, and what are the health benefits, uh, in summary, of the teas that you provide? So tea and and soft beverages, Mm -hmm. right? And so when I speak of poison, I think I'm mainly talking about um, your Coke products, okay, right? And how you can pour them on, like... it was like a car. <laughs> you know, take the paint off yeah, or whatever, take, take the, the rust off. off. Yeah. And and we're putting that in our bodies, right? And I guess more so when I'm thinking about tea, it's all of these 
um, diuretics mm-hmm. <laughs> that people are using that long term, your it, your body's going to have a hard time back, bouncing back from that. Mm-hmm. Right. You're creating this phenomenon for your body that is unnatural. Right. And so when we give you a tea that curbs your metabolism. Right. We're not selling you the idea that tomorrow you're going to have a six pack. Mm-hmm. Right. It's a commitment to a long term investment. Right. You still have to do the work of thinking about what you're eating coupled with the tea. You still have to think about if you're going to the gym today. Right. Right. Um, but with time, you're investing in something that's going to carry you. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and do good by your body. So whether it's the extreme nature of like what we know mm-hmm. <laughs> caffeinated soft beverages do to your body or if it's that misleading nature of some of those um, slimming teas, right? It's inauthentic to how your body is supposed to produce, right? And the the level is supposed to produce for you. So you want something that is natural, Mm -hmm. right? You want something that doesn't go against your entire, (laughs) like your, your entire system of how food is processed and broken down internally. Understood. So that's why I use the extreme word of poison because what you if if you were to and I've seen something about this like if you were to do a biopsy Mm -hmm. right on a person who's drink who has drank tea the entire lives versus someone who has drank those soft beverages there's a difference really Mm -hmm. there's a difference in what the body was able to do for that person who was constantly drinking a tea that has this high in antioxidants Accidents, right? Mm-hmm that's high in um, vitamin C that's l- low and because in anti because of anti-inflammatories right there's something different about the life you're able to lead mm-hmm. and how you're able to push yourself mentally because you're not being held back by what you're drinking awesome so where can people find these awesome teas online so you can go to brooklyntea.com and you can explore from where you are with your palate. So if you're a sweet palate, there's something for you there. If you're curious about how you might like something a little bit different, we provide descriptions for every tea, mm-hmm. where it comes from, what it, sh- what it should taste like. So we definitely welcome you for that. And then for our tea shop, January 19th, we're opening our doors so that you can have a closer look. Awesome. Now, will that, the information on that launch and where to find you be on brooklyntea.com as well? Yeah, that and on our Twitter, okay, on Facebook and Instagram. And what are your social media handles? Yes, at Brooklyn T. Awesome. So you got that consistent yes. branding yes. across the board, which is always great. Yeah. Well, this has been, I knew it was going to be a great conversation, <laughs> but this has been informative, it's been inspiring, and it's been fun. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much. It's been a joy. <laughs> Thank you to our listeners. Support Black-owned businesses. If you're a tea drinker or thinking about being a tea drinker or just want to get healthier, go ahead and check out Brooklyn T. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26th. That's December 26ER.